Hi, you're listening to the EU China podcast powered by the EU China Hub, straight from Brussels, a show on which we interview important actors in the EU China relations and cover the top EU China news. Our mission is to help you to get a more nuanced picture of what is going on in the EU China relations. My name is Greg Stetz and I'm happy to have you with us. If you like our show, don't forget to subscribe and to tell your friends about us. Let's get started. Hi, here comes the EU China briefing for August 3rd, 2020. In today's news, we cover EU China high level trade and economic dialogue, make it or break it for comprehensive agreement on investment in 2020. EU releases response package on Hong Kong. Cybersecurity back in the spotlight. EU's first ever cyber sanctions. China's diplomatic push. Beijing seeks to prevent US-led containment. Estonia rejects China-backed infrastructure plan. This recording is based on a briefing prepared by Flavian Berniaga and Grzegorz Stets. Enjoy! EU-China High-Level Trade and Economic Dialogue Make it or break it for a comprehensive agreement on investments in 2020 Amid the corona crisis and growing political tensions in the relations, EU-China economic links are entering a juncture which will determine whether concluding the comprehensive agreement on investments in 2020 is still possible. Between July 20th and 24th, the EU and China held their 31st round of negotiations on the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment. The Commission reported that quote-unquote significant progress was made on matters relating to state-owned enterprises, transparency rules on subsidies and rules on forced technology transfers. The two also highlighted quote constructive exchanges on sustainable development notably on the mechanism for addressing the differences, end of quote. However, in spite of these developments, the EU is far from being satisfied with China's plans for market reforms. During the eight high-level trade and economic dialogue on July 29th, Commission Vice President Valdis Dombrovskis and Trade Commissioner Phil Hogan exchanged views over a video call with Vice Premier Liu He, China's key trade official. While welcoming recent progress on comprehensive agreement on investments, the EU highlighted that China still has to provide market access in telecom and computer sectors, health, biotechnology and new energy vehicles. Similarly, the EU presented its concerns on the unjustified inspections and restrictions imposed by China on the EU's food exports. In terms of sustainable development, the EU insisted that China must make more meaningful commitments as its current engagement is not ambitious enough. Interestingly, one day before the high-level trade and economic dialogue, three anonymous EU diplomats indicated that the EU decided to link the successful completion of Comprehensive Agreement on Investments negotiations to its agreement on the EU-China 2025 agenda. This is a clear push on the EU side to get leverage on comprehensive agreement on investments by linking it to a policy that Beijing is invested in. The general mood in Brussels was summed up by High Representative Joseph Borrell, who in a blog post on July 31st said that, quote, 
EU impatience is growing, end of quote, on such issues as the uneven playing field, on the effects of industrial subsidies, and on the lack of reciprocity in procurement. And as the EU and China reach this critical point in their economic negotiations, it is worth taking note of the recent domestic economic developments in the two camps. As China's economic recovery persisted in July, the dependence on heavy industry, big infrastructure projects, and low-end exports is prominent. The recovery was powered up by state investment and debt in cherry-picked sectors. The shaky status of global trade and wider economy encourages China to seek to become more self-reliant, and this approach, dubbed as dual circulation, was endorsed by Xi Jinping himself on July 21st when he argued that China, quote, must give full play to the advantages of the domestic super-large market, end of quote, in order to cope with the global economic downturn. At the same time, the eurozone economy, amounting to 85% of the EU's GDP, experienced a year-on-year contraction of 15% in the second quarter of 2020. And talk of open strategic autonomy in Brussels circles shows that the EU is also becoming more assertive in protecting its economic interests and vision of international economics while remaining committed to an open global economy. And in our podcast interview, MEP Julio Winkler referred to open strategic autonomy as the EU's attempt to ensure that the common market is protected from distortive forces, for example by diversifying trade partners and supply chains, boosting defensive measures of the single market, etc., at the same time keeping the EU's status of a promoter of multilateralism. Moving to the takeaway. As High Representative Borrell pointed out in his blog post, The EU is impatient to see whether China is serious about its commitments to market reforms, particularly as China has been reluctant to deliver on its promises in the past. The best proof that patience is really running low is the fact that Brussels reportedly tied the EU-China Agenda 2025 with the finalization of negotiations on the Comprehensive Agreement on Investments. The agenda is important for China because it would act as a commitment by the EU to a constructive relationship with China. And the timing is very important here. As Washington is mounting pressure on Beijing, China is doing its best to ensure that Europe does not choose to side with the US. And we dive deeper into this issue in Newsbyte 4. This increases the EU's leverage in comprehensive agreement on investments negotiations, though it should also become clear that if China does not budge now, it is hard to imagine it will anytime soon. Whether Brussels' pressure will work is a make-it-or-break-it for completing comprehensive agreement on investments in 2020. The results will be clear by September 14, the latest, when Charles Michel, Ursula von der Leyen and Angela Merkel are scheduled to have a high-level video conference with Xi Jinping. The EU releases response package on Hong Kong. On July 24th, the Foreign Affairs Council, which comprises of High Representative Joseph Borrell and the EU 27 foreign ministers, endorsed a coordinated response to the Hong Kong National Security Law. The package comes after about a month of discussions and is to be implemented at the EU or member states level, 
as it covers some actions which require member state competences. The critical element of the package is the limit on exports of quote-unquote sensitive equipment and technologies that could be used for quote internal repression, the interception of internal communication or cyber surveillance, end of quote. The ministers also agreed to reconsider their respective asylum policy and to grant freeing Hong Kong students scholarships. Finally, the package pledges to monitor the effects of the law outside of Hong Kong, as well as to observe the trials of pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong. The package is a significant development as it marks a step forward in creating a common China policy across all member states. It also proves that Franco-German cooperation can indeed lead to creating a foreign policy at the EU level in the context of China. On July 29th, China's foreign ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin said the EU's response interfered in China's internal affairs. Wang said the decision undermines Hong Kong's prosperity and stability and urged the EU to, quote, focus on maintaining the sound development of China-EU relations, end of quote. Similarly, in its own press brief, the China mission to the EU labeled the package a quote-unquote wrong move and urged the EU not to meddle in China's and Hong Kong's internal affairs. Despite the harsher language, though, China did not indicate any plans to retaliate with concrete measures. But Hong Kong is bound to become an even more complex issue after Chief Executive Carrie Lam announced on July 31st that legislative elections will be postponed for a year. Lam argued the virus makes it impossible to hold elections on September 6th and declared the state council, so China's main legislative body, will sort out any legal issues until September 5th, 2021, so the date of the rescheduled elections. Her decision was confronted by pro-democracy advocates who were expected to score important electoral victories as a response to the national security law. And Lam's announcement also came in a sensitive context, as on July 29th, four pro-independent student activists aged 16 to 21 were arrested for subversion, terrorism, and collusion with foreign forces. On July 30th, 12 high-profile pro-democracy candidates, including Joshua Wong and Dennis Kwok, were banned from running in the elections. And on July 31st, Hong Kong authorities issued arrest warrants for, among others, US citizen Samuel Chu, providing an example how the infamous Article 38 will be interpreted. All these decisions drew international criticism. The US, UK, Australia and the EU had vowed to monitor whether the September elections will be free and fair, and lawmakers from 12 legislators decried the banning of candidates as an, quote, obstruction of the democratic process, end of quote. Importantly, the German foreign ministry announced on July 31st it will suspend its extradition treaty with Hong Kong as a result of the postponement of elections. Moving on to the takeaway, there's definitely more to come on this topic. While the EU's coordinated response on Hong Kong is a positive development, the systemic rivalry challenges stemming from the national security law are only starting to emerge. The wide breadth of the legislation was demonstrated in the banning of 12 candidates, 
extraterritorial interpretation of Article 38, and the arresting of four protesters. This means that response on Hong Kong will inevitably make its way back on the Foreign Affairs Council agenda sometime soon. That being said, China is not likely to be overly aggressive, to a point, of course, in its retaliations to the EU, as it would undermine its efforts to avoid US-led international containment. Beijing is definitely concerned with the worsening of relations with Washington, which means it will tread carefully not to enter a full-scale confrontation with Brussels at the same time. Cybersecurity back in the spotlight. EU's first-ever cyber sanctions. On July 30th, the EU imposed its first-ever cyber sanctions, which constituted a mixture of travel bans and asset freezes on six individuals and three entities responsible for past cyber attacks. Included in these sanctions is the attempted attack on the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, but also the attacks known to the public as WannaCry, NotPetya, and Operation Cloudhopper. The sanctions also forbid individuals and entities from making funds available to the listed entities. Particularly important for the EU-China relations are the sanctions applied to Cloudhopper, a case of two Chinese hackers working with the Chinese Ministry of State Security. Some of Cloudhopper's victims were Ericsson, IBM and HP. But the hacker also got access to commercial secrets of aviation companies, pharmaceutical firms and some industrial giants in the West between 2014 and 2017. But let's take a look at the wider picture here. Following cases of cyber attacks during the pandemic, the EU vowed on July 24th to provide a policy response that would build a, quote, real security ecosystem, end of quote. And the response is called the Strategy for a Security Union. Its goals are to prioritize policymaking on hybrid threats, to heighten coordination on security, and to propose the building of new digital and physical infrastructure. The European External Action Service would be in charge of creating a platform on hybrid threats where member states could coordinate their responses, while a new joint cyber unit would allow the EU27 to coordinate defense against cyber threats. And this comes in the context of the EU's moves on cybersecurity topics last month. Just recall that during the 22nd EU-China summit, Ursula von der Leyen complained to Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang that China had staged cyber attacks on hospitals and has promoted disinformation in Europe during the pandemic. Another example is the Commission's joint communication on disinformation from June 10th. And interestingly, there are also some new examples related to Vatican. Recorded Future, a US private cybersecurity company, alleged on July 29th that hackers working for the Chinese government orchestrated a series of intrusions on the Vatican computer network that started in May. The company was able to trace the attacks as the hackers employed tactics used in the past by state-backed Chinese hackers. Foreign Minister spokesperson Wang Wenbin denied the accusations, but there have been previous documented instances of similar attacks meant to gather information on Buddhist Tibetans, Muslim Uyghurs, or Falun Gong practitioners. 
No official statement came from the Vatican, but the timing is particular here. The Catholic Church has managed to improve relations with Beijing starting in 2018, when the two sides began negotiations over the appointment of bishops. In 2018, the two sides agreed for Beijing to name bishop candidates, but the Pope remained the final decision-maker over their appointments. Moving to the takeaway. As pointed out by Carnegie Endowment's tech analyst Natalie Thompson, quote, several of the targets listed in the EU cyber sanctions have already been sanctioned by the United States. For example, Minin, Mornets, Serbriakov, Sotnikov, end of quote. And this shows that cybersecurity could indeed become an area of cooperation within a transatlantic format. And this would fit in line with NATO's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg's vision for 2030 and Margaret Vestager's remarks at the Brussels Forum. What's more, some of the sanctions imposed by the EU, unlike the ones of the United States, did tackle cyber-enabled economic espionage. The big problem here is, however, the approach. While the EU would rather prefer to keep it purely technical, at least in terms of the rhetoric that is being applied, the US is more inclined to make the sanctions a political affair linked to a broader relations with selected countries. And this is indeed a wider problem, underpinning much of the potential cooperation on China that could exist on the Brussels-Washington axis. China's diplomatic push. Beijing seeks to prevent US-led containment. Faced with an increasingly hawkish administration in Washington, China launched a swift diplomatic offensive to convince its major European partners not to support American quote-unquote cold-war-minded containment initiative. On July 25th, 29th and 30th respectively, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi called his German, French and Italian counterparts in efforts to ensure that they don't band with the US against China. Soon after Pompeo's speech at the Richard Nixon Library, Wang Yi warned German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas that, quote, some anti-China forces in America have deliberately created ideological confrontation and openly threatened other countries to take a side, end of quote. Maas responded by stressing the importance of upholding one country, two systems in Hong Kong and reiterated the EU policy that sees China at the same time as a cooperation partner, a negotiating partner, an economic competitor and a systemic rival. In a call with French Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian, Wang restated China's efforts to prevent a descent into a new Cold War and called on France to quote-unquote resist following in the US footsteps. On July 30th, Wang phoned Italian Foreign Minister Luigi Di Maio, whom he also warned on the division sowed by, quote, particular countries, end of quote, and Wang further remarked that he, quote, hopes that the European side will adhere to strategic autonomy and proceed from its own fundamental long-term interest and uphold an objective, fair and positive attitude in handling relations with China, end of quote. 
Soon after, on July 31st, in a blog post seen as a response to Pompeo, High Representative Joseph Borrell reiterated the EU needs to craft its own strategy on China, regardless of who emerges victorious in the US presidential elections in November. He argued that the US-China strategic rivalry is bound to become the, quote, dominant organizing principle for global politics, end of quote, which forces the EU to seek to take a path that is coherent with its values and interests. And this means that the EU shouldn't align itself with either Washington or Beijing. However, Borrell did highlight that the US and Europe are quote-unquote political cousins, both bred from the Enlightenment, both with commitments to pluralism and individual rights. Nonetheless, High Representative argued that China cannot be left out of problems that are, quote, planet-sized problems like tackling the COVID-19 pandemic or mitigating climate change, end of quote. And finally, Borrell stated that the EU does not want to follow in the footsteps of the White House's current policy on waging a new Cold War on China. He expressed his hopes that the US will give up unilateralism and will work hand-to-hand with other democracies such as Australia, South Korea or Japan on China. And let's take a look at other important contexts to this charm offensive. In contrast to the reconciliatory stance taken on the EU, China took a harsher stance on the United Kingdom and argued that in aligning itself with the US, London has quote-unquote poisoned relations with China. The drastic statements came in an opinion piece by Chinese ambassador to the United Kingdom, Liu Xiaoming, and the referred opinion piece came in the context of the UK's announcement of a detailed plan to phase out Huawei from its 5G equipment by 2027, but also in the context of Pompeo's speech at the Richard Nixon Library. Liu stated that the UK-China relations is at a, quote, historical political juncture, end of quote, and threatened that Britain will quote-unquote, pay the price if it chooses to view China as a hostile nation. And in a similar vein as Wang Yi, Liu accused, quote, some British politicians, end of quote, of having a Cold War mentality and of being influenced by Washington. Moving to the takeaway. Mike Pompeo's speech at the Richard Nixon Library was definitely received with concern in Beijing. A transatlantic alliance under a banner of the free world would create further challenges for China that has been increasingly becoming isolated compared to pre-pandemic reality. But to alter things, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs must not only appeal to diplomatic partners to keep the business as usual despite changing political and economic realities, but it also would have to provide alternative proposals for reinventing the relations. And we don't see that as of now. Still, the EU's position is relatively clear. It does want to become less, quote-unquote, naive on China, as High Representative Joseph Borrell suggested on multiple occasions, and it does see China, among other things, as a systemic rival. However, the EU starkly disagrees with what the White House currently brands as China policy. As such, while there is acknowledgement that Brussels and Washington can only influence Beijing's actions through collaboration, much needs to be done to facilitate this. Furthermore, not even a change of president in November may fully alter the outlook, as hawkish views on China appear to increasingly become a bipartisan trait. Estonia rejects China-backed infrastructure plan. 
On July 31st, the Estonian government announced it will reject plans to build a tunnel under the Baltic Sea connecting Tallinn and Helsinki. The private investment plan, which would have been partially funded by Chinese money, was cited to present environmental, economic and security concerns. Consequently, according to Minister of Public Administration Jaak Aab, Estonia will not go through with the plan of building a 100-kilometer undersea rail and road link. While Ab did not go into detail on the reasoning, he said that, quote, In the light of the information known to the state authorities today, we have reason to doubt that the given project can be put into practice, end of quote. China Railway International Group, China Railway Engineering Company and the China Communications Construction Company were bound to have contracts from the project. However, the decision may not be final. Finest Bay Area Development, the project developer, submitted 1,500 pages to settle concerns in the hope that Estonian authorities will reconsider. However, another way forward is possible as Minister Ab said that the tunnel should be built solely by Estonian and Finnish authorities with the final goal of connecting it with the Rail Baltica, so an EU-funded project that links the Baltics with Poland and a high-speed rail connection across the continent. However, this seems quite unlikely given the fact that Estonia's Foreign Intelligence Service stated back in February that the Chinese FDI represent a security threat due to, quote, the potential use of China's foreign investments for political purposes and the possible development of technological dependency, end of quote. Additionally, the service feared that financing drawn by raising capital on a stock exchange would end up involving Chinese SOEs in the project. Interestingly, the project itself has been pushed by influential Finnish entrepreneur and former executive of Rovio, a company behind Angry Birds, Peter Westerbacher. Moving to the takeaway. There is also a wider geopolitical angle to the Finest Bay or Tallinn-Helsinki project. If completed, that project could become a part of the Polar Silk Road, so part of the Belt and Road Initiative connecting China and Europe via the Arctic. The Silk Road would consist of both laying the undersea fiber optic cables and opening new sea routes between China and Europe. On the European end, the ships sent from China would arrive at the Norwegian port of Kirkens, from where the goods could be transported by rail through Finland and Estonia to the EU-funded Rail Baltica. However, the exact status of the project at current remains unclear. The logistics value of this trade route at this stage is still limited. Transport via Arctic Corridor entails dealing with challenging conditions that present an even greater challenge, given the limited number of icebreakers within Chinese fleet. Also, the limited number of ports along the way makes it less economically attractive. And on top of that come construction setbacks, such as protests of Finland's Sami people against rail constructions in the northern part of the country or Estonian authorities' concerns that we discussed in this news bite. And that's it for this week's briefing. See you next time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the EU China podcast. If you want to know more or to get in touch with us, visit our website, which is euchinahubwrittenjointly.com. And if you find this show insightful, be sure to leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. It will help others to get to know about us. See you next time.